بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله So inshallah tonight is our final class in the diseases of the heart. We're still in module 10 next week, but the first part of module 10 has been about the diseases of the heart and their cure. As a part of the fard ayn knowledge, the things that we have to know as Muslims. Next week inshallah, it's going to be either one or two sessions. Not more than two, for the second aspect, which concerns the praiseworthy qualities, the positive qualities that one should build, that one is required to know about. Um, so probably one class, maximum two. After that, inshallah, we'll go straight into module 11. And module 11 is actually... There's a series of things we'll be discussing in Module 11. You can call it, if you will, uh, you can call it either Aqidah 102 as opposed to 101 in the beginning. Uh, or you could call it miscellaneous issues that concern faith, that are fardain that Muslims should know. And uh, I'll give you more information about what we'll be speaking about in detail uh, at the end of next week or when we finish this module, inshallah. So for a while now, this is lesson six in module 10 concerning the diseases of the heart. And we're going to go through a few of these tonight, inshallah, finishing them up. Uh, some of these are rather simple. And for that reason you'll find that as we get towards the end, I'm just sharing the poetry of Imam Muhammad Mawlud without too much commentary. Um, but for the first few, we'll talk about it in some detail. Now, the next disease of the heart, and again, this is in no particular order. Uh, originally, it was arranged according to his poem, which is arranged alphabetically. Uh, this next disease is khawful faqar, or the fear of poverty. Now, the fear of poverty, we have to distinguish between feelings of anxiety that come and go, or passing worries that come and go. We have to distinguish between passing thoughts and fixed states that are negative. And we'll talk about that, inshallah. He causes fear of poverty, and he says fear of poverty originates in having a bad opinion of Allah the Exalted. So what we call, having a bad opinion of Allah. And its cure is in having a good opinion of Allah and knowing that what Allah possesses is never diminished in the least and that what has been apportioned to you will reach you inevitably. So what is fear of poverty? The ulama say that fear of poverty is the feeling that a person has in their soul that if they lose what they possess of wealth, then they're not going to get what they need, right? And if they harbor that fear, not as a passing thought or a passing anxiety that quickly goes, but they harbor that fear, then this, they say, is based on having a bad opinion of Allah Ta'ala. And the Qur'an tells us that this feeling is actually the suggestion of shaitan. Because in the Qur'an, in Surah Al-Baqarah, Allah Ta'ala says, الشَّيْطَانِ يَعِدُكُمُ الْفَقْرِ Right? He, uh, he doesn't just uh, whisper to you fear of poverty. He threatens you with poverty. You see, there's a difference. You could get a whispering, which is a very discreet suggestion that pops into your head that shaitan is whispering to get you to do something, to motivate you to do something haram. But this is a threat of shaitan. So it's more intense. He promises you poverty. And يَعِدُكُمْ 
And you could say promise. It could also mean threat. But Allah Ta'ala promises you His forgiveness and fadl, His bounty. So that is the basic definition. But where does it come from? Where does fear of poverty originate? Is there something that, is, that comes before it that if we have that other thing, it will lead to fear of poverty? Some of the scholars, they say that before fear of poverty, there's a quality called tama'a. Now that quality has been mentioned a few times. And that's because some of the scholars say that the root of all of these diseases is that tama'a. What is tama'a? Tama'a, I say in Arabic because there's no simple English word for it. The, the simple translation of tama'a is craving or coveting or clinging and going for the things of the world. It's not just wanting something nice. It's craving it and coveting it to the point of sacrificing your values, to the point of seeking to get it at any cost. That tamar, he says, and the other scholars say, gives rise to all these other diseases. So why would a person be envious of someone else for what they have if not for that tamar? Why would they be jealous? Why would they have lengthy, prolonged hopes that they're going to live forever when they're not? Well, it's because they crave things of the world, and it's, it's not just a passing desire. So some scholars say that this fear of poverty comes from that too, this craving of the stuff of the world. Others say that it comes from tulul amal, or that, those prolonged hopes that we spoke about last week. The idea that we're going to live so long that we have, we have to ward off poverty at all costs. Think about it. If you know that you're going to die tomorrow, are you going to worry about being poor? No. But if you feel that you have a long time in this world and you're, you're suffering from a bit of poverty, that could take root in your heart and you really start to worry about it and fear it. So the point of it becoming a disease, right? So when they talk about the origin, it's, it's useful for, for us to understand that so we can diagnose the possible source. But ultimately, whether it's from craving or lengthened hopes, it is a disease of the heart. But I, you know, and I said in the beginning, we have to, we have to distinguish between uh, passing thoughts and states that arise in the soul that are more like fixed qualities. Now, a state by its very nature is passing, but it becomes like a constant state of anxiety and fear and worry as opposed to a passing thought. It's important to make that distinction because it is possible for a person to, you know, they have this passing worry about their finances, but it goes after a day or two, you know. They, they reshuffle the finances, they make some moves, and, you know, it goes away. Uh, or, as they're about to give sadaqah, shaitan whispers to them that threat of poverty, and, you know, kind of lingers in there for a moment, but then it goes away. That is not the fear of poverty that is considered a disease of the heart. Those passing thoughts are not. What is a disease of the heart is when it becomes rooted in the heart, that causes a person to cling to the world and also perhaps cause them to have other diseases like envy and prolonged hopes. Now I want to emphasize that because a lot of people read books about Islamic spirituality, they read about the diseases of the heart, and they fail to distinguish between diseases that take root in the heart and passing thoughts of things that are similar, right? Because you don't, you don't need to overly identify with those passing thoughts, right? I think I said it last week. You know, it's silly, but it's a good example. If you ever walk down the street on a busy street in downtown and you have a passing thought, oh, I wonder what would happen if that person was pushed onto oncoming traffic. You know, just a weird thought that pops into your head and as fast as it comes in, it goes out as well. That's not you. Don't 
grasp onto that thought and think, oh my God, what is wrong with me? I had a thought about throwing someone into oncoming traffic. I am a horrible person. No, don't take so much ownership of these thoughts that come and go. What is important is that you don't latch onto it and identify with it and make it your own. Well, that'll be a problem, won't it? You know, it becomes a passing thought. I wonder what would happen if that person was pushed onto oncoming traffic and now you take ownership of it. Hmm, I wonder how would I do that and get away with it, right? Then it becomes a bigger problem. Same thing for fear of poverty and other passing thoughts, right? Uh, if it comes and goes, don't worry about it. If it is fixed in your soul and you find yourself wrestling with it, then you identify the, so the source. It's probably tamar, this craving after the world, having this bad opinion of Allah, as if somehow Allah is going to neglect you, right? Now, if someone has this problem, right, there's different ways you can treat it. But the ulama say that at the top of the list is having the opposite of what it entails. So we said that fear of poverty entails, or it is, su al-dhan billah, having a bad opinion of Allah. So if fear of poverty entails having a bad opinion of Allah, what is the cure? It is building that husn al-dhan, that good opinion of Allah, so that you push this out, right? You can't have both at the same time. You can't have a good opinion of Allah and a bad opinion of Allah at the same time. It's a binary. You have to have one or the other, right? You're either with us or against us, as they say. So if you're able to develop that good opinion of Allah, you will get rid of this. So you have this good opinion of Allah and you... Strengthen that certainty that he is al-razaq. He is the provider. To see reality through the eye of tawheed. We talk about aqidah in aqidah 101. And we talk about it here and there. We keep saying it's not just an intellectual pursuit. It's not just something for your mind that you understand up here that doesn't translate into how your heart is. When a person truly knows that Allah is the provider, when a person sees the reality of everything through the lenses of Tawheed, they will have that good opinion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, likewise, they say, a way to cure this is to cultivate taqwa in our daily life in how we behave and treat others. That's the general treatment. Uh, what we find across Islamic history is that sometimes scholars would write books just addressing individual diseases. So you, you would have a book addressing envy. And in that book it talks about the disease of envy and how blameworthy it is. And it talks about stories of envy and the negative outcomes of envy. And then it will talk about the opposite. You know, how do you cultivate uh, qualities that will get rid of envy. And it becomes a reminder for people. And they read it and it inspires them and reminds them of these values. In the area of fear of poverty, likewise, books have been written, very beautiful books. And I think it could be argued that the best book on the topic, which is... Uh, in Arabic and also translated into English and perhaps other languages, the best book addressing this topic is the book of Imam Ibn Ata'illah al-Sakandari called At-Tanweer fi Isqat al-Tadbir, which means illumination through dropping tadbir. Now, what is tadbir? Uh, tadbir is this, this uh, obsessive desire to micromanage every little thing going on in your life, to have everything so perfect that you stress yourself out and become filled with anxiety and worry if your provision doesn't come in this way and in this time and this manner. It takes so many forms. So, but his book is all about, uh, you know, what's the saying? I think they say it in Morocco, uh, right? Relax your mind and heart and learn how to swim. So think about swimming. 
How many of you uh, learned to swim as children? How many of you learned as you were adults? Okay, about half and half. Now, one of the first things you learn is when you're a kid, you don't remember these things, right? But when you're an adult, you may remember these lessons. When you're learning how to swim, the most important thing to do is relax. What's going to happen if you're in the water and your muscles all tense up and you get stressed out? You sink. So going through this life, if you're overly tense about everything and overstressed and trying to just control everything, you're, you're spiritually tense and then you, you sink. In order to swim effectively, you have to let go a little bit. So this book, At-Tanweer uh, fi Isqat al-Tadbir, it is such a profound book because he goes into it through so many angles about how Allah Ta'ala has guaranteed provision, how he provides for his servants. Uh, and he's not saying, you know, listen, in order to trust Allah, you have to give up your job and just wander the streets. He's not saying that at all. He's saying that there's a certain etiquette when it comes to earning a livelihood. Not just the outer etiquette, of doing your job properly with ihsan, but also an inner etiquette. And that inner etiquette, subhanAllah, it has been translated in different ways across Islamic history. You know, one of the common things you see in many pre-modern Islamic societies, and it still exists in some parts of the world, is how they operate the aswaq, the, the marketplaces. Now, I don't know how it is in Pakistan, it's been too long since I visited there. But uh, in many countries, when you go to the market, the, the old souk, I mean, not the shopping mall. If you want to go look for, let's say, uh, eyeglasses, right? The eyeglass shop. You'll go to an area in the souk, and every single stall is an eyeglass shop. There's a dozen of them. Which, you know, in, in our American sense, that doesn't, that doesn't really make sense because why would you have com competition next to you on both sides and across from you and all down that alley? Why would you do that? Wouldn't it make sense to have your shop way on the other side to take advantage of that crowd so they only go to you? But they have them all in one place, right? They're selling vegetables, all vegetable shops. Selling cloths, all cloth. And one of the things you find in these pre-modern societies in the souk is that if the shop owner sold enough goods for his you know, his daily needs, he would close the thing. He would shut it and he would go home. Why? Because he's giving the others next to him a chance to make some money as well. He has enough, so he goes home, right? SubhanAllah. And that way, that's one less shop to be you know, taking away customers from the other person. Or the other group. So this, you know, this is a good book, Al-Tanweer fi Asqat al-Tadbir. It's translated into English. I think the translation is Illumination in Dropping Self-Direction. Now there's two translations. So th there's one in particular you want to get. Uh, the other one I cannot recommend. It's really horrible. Uh, but the, the other one is by uh, Dr. Ibrahim Hakim. And uh, it's a really good book to get. So... That's a good treatment plan for the fear of poverty. Just reading that book, right? Because it's reminders, ayat, stories. Uh, it really goes into this disease. Okay. Now, if fear of poverty stems from having a bad opinion of Allah, the next disease is somewhat similar. And it is having a bad opinion of other people. Su'avan binas having a bad opinion of others. This is a huge topic because, you know, you see people and you hear them say stuff or do things and you might entertain, you know, bad feelings about them or you, it's a thing people struggle with. So Imam Muhammad Mawlud talks about this. He says, some assumptions are not permissible, such as holding a bad opinion about someone who manifests righteous behavior. Okay? Now, for, let's just... What, what is dhan? Okay, what's in my pocket? No, what's in my pocket? Give me a guess. Okay. 
Do you see them? You don't. What you, you, you think I have keys in my pocket because there's a strong possibility I do because most people have keys in their pocket. You are correct, sir. They are keys. But what you made was a was dhan. It was dhan. So here, dhan means a true guess. But not all guesses are true, are they? I could have keys in this pocket and not this one, right? So just a reminder about what dhan means. It can mean an assumption or a true guess, or it could be a suspicion, right? We're not sure about it. He says that some assumptions are not permissible, such as what? Holding a bad opinion about someone who manifests righteous behavior, right? You know, outwardly, they're praying, they're fasting, they're doing, reciting Qur'an. You have no reason to think badly about them while they're doing that righteous thing. So if you entertain a bad thought about them and say in yourself, yeah, they're just showing off, right? That is su'adhan. That is forbidden, right? He says, this means that your heart is convinced and you have judged him based on your heart's suspicion without proof that warrants such an assumption, right? So that is called su'adhan. What is the opposite? Husnadhan. Husnadhan, having a good opinion. Now there's a hadith that is related from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in which it's reported that he said that from the goodness of worship is having a good opinion of others. Husnadhan min husnan ibadah. So having husnadhan is a form of having good in your ibadah to Allah. Uh, in another hadith, the Prophet ﷺ warned us. He says, Beware of dhan. Here it means bad suspicion. Uh, for indeed, suspicion is the falsest of speech. Because there's no confirmation. That's important. There's no external confirmation of the suspicion. If there's external confirmation, it's not suspicion anymore. It's concrete. It's objective. So let's look at this. I want to look at it from two perspectives. There's perspective of, well, knowing what suwadhan is so we can avoid it, but also knowing uh, what is not suwadhan. Because husnadhan, having a good opinion of others, is a concept that is true but it can often be wielded against people and used against them to get them to be quiet or to go along with something that is blameworthy or to continue being a victim to someone, right? So let's look at that a little bit. Now the ulama say that husn al-dhun, having a good opinion, applies to actions and characteristics they carry the possibility of being interpreted uh, as good or bad. Uh, to give preponderance to the good over the bad. Okay? So let's say a person has... Uh, you're walking in the musalla after Jumu'ah. As you turn to leave the door, someone bumps you hard on the shoulder causing you to lose your balance. Okay? So that's, that happened. That action of the other person can be interpreted in two ways. Either they don't like you and they're trying to hurt you. They're mad at you for some reason and they just shoved you. Or they lost their balance and bumped into you by accident. Are these both possibilities? Yeah. Do you have clear-cut evidence that they intentionally shoved you because they want to hurt you? No. So as long as you have these two possibilities, and those no, there's no other evidence for or against it. If you weigh the two, then husn al-dhan, having a good opinion, dictates that you give it the best interpretation. That should outweigh it. You should say, okay, he, he slipped. Someone bumped into him, he lost his balance. 
And he bumped into me by accident. He's not trying to hurt me, right? Because you have nothing concrete to say it was intentional. So your default setting is that what this person did was an accident. I have a good opinion of him that he would never intend to hurt me deliberately. I have no reason to believe that. I have no history of him doing that. So I interpret it in the best light. That is what husn al is. Now, husn al is not applied to actions that are clearly haram. You don't apply husn al to a person who is openly drinking liquor. However, there is still a shred of possible husn al there. Maybe this person, you see them outside, you see them, let's say, let's say they have a, a Jack Daniels bottle, right? That's, that's whiskey. And you see this person drinking what looks like whiskey. There is a possibility that they're homeless and that this is the only container they have and they're drinking iced tea in this container. It's a possibility. But let's say you smell the alcohol on their breath and they are publicly drunk, and they have the alcohol there. There is no room for husn al in this. You wouldn't say, oh, you know, this person just accidentally bumped into a bottle of Jack Daniels, and it accidentally poured into his mouth, and he just accidentally got drunk. No, it's very obvious that this person is intentionally drinking alcohol. So there's no husn al for things that are haram and done purposely by an individual, right? Now, in the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us a very important instruction about dhan. In Surah Al-Hujarat, He addresses the believers by saying, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا اِجْتَنِبُوا كَثِيرًا مِنَ الظن إِنَّ بَعْضَ الظَّنِّ إِثْمِ He says, O oh, you who believe, avoid much of dhan. Much of it. For indeed, some dhan is sinful. Some dhan is sinful. What is the mafhum of this verse? The mafhum is that if some suspicion is sinful, some is not. Some suspicion is not sinful. That means that not all suspicions are bad. Not all suspicions are haram. And ba'dhan, yeah, this is partitative. So some bad opinions of other people are perfectly warranted and perfectly permissible. All right. I was waiting to use this slide. All right. Example. If someone comes up to you and they deliberately, you know, they come and they punch you right in the face, it is not husnavan in that case to say, oh, well, you know, I had some rice in my beard and they were, you know, in their brotherly concern, they were trying to get it out of my beard for me. That is not husn al because it's a very clearly deliberate assault. If you apply husn al to things that are clear cut like that, guess what's going to happen? You're going to get punched again and again and again. So you have to be wary of this because. Sometimes pious Muslims fall into this trap of applying husn al-dhan where it shouldn't be. Because they don't want to have bad opinions. They end up having good opinions for things that actually deserve a bad opinion. Because it is bad, right? So as believers, we have to have tamyiz. We have to have discernment in what's going on around us. Not everything warrants a bad opinion, but not everything warrants a good opinion either. So we have to be uh, wary of this. Now, we have the famous hadith. Uh, it's actually not a hadith, but it's you know, said to be a hadith. Many people think it's a hadith. It's not a hadith. Uh, it is that saying, um, I believe, is attributed to Imam Ja'far al-Sadiq, maybe someone else, where it says that you should give 70 excuses for your brother. How many of you have all heard that, right? 70 excuses, meaning a lot of excuses. So if someone does something, before you give it the bad interpretation, you try to 
give them 70 excuses, positive spins on what they did before you arrive at the bad interpretation. So how does that fit in, in this issue of having a good opinion or a bad opinion? The scholars say that that is a true statement, but it applies to things where there's a reasonable interpretation. So everything that is not uh, 100% clear-cut and unambiguous can receive some kind of interpretation, right? Okay, so the person who bumped into you in the masjid. If you say, he tripped, he slipped, and he bumped into me, is that a reasonable interpretation? Yeah, it's reasonable. And they say, ta'wil qareeb. It's close to what's, what's likely the case. Uh, but if the interpretation is ta'wil ba'id, it's a far-fetched interpretation, then this narration doesn't apply. It's not that you have to give 70 excuses, all of which are far-fetched interpretations. So in the example of the guy punching you to get the rice out of your beard, like that interpretation is far-fetched. That's ba'id. The most likely interpretation is that they're assaulting you. And so you have to respond accordingly. So we have to be smart. We have to be intelligent and not uh, allow ourselves in the name of piety to become uh, victims to the, the abuses of others and uh, whitewash what they do that is wrong in the name of Hasnadhan. We have to also have that caution. And we have this statement from Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu. He says, I'm neither a trickster or one who falls for tricksters. Now, the believer is intelligent. We give husn al-dhan where husn al-dhan is possible and warranted. But when it's not possible and not warranted because things are clear-cut or a good interpretation is ta'wil ba'id, a far-fetched interpretation, then we understand what the person is doing is bad. That's it. What we do after depends on what we're able to do. At the very least, we're aware that what this person is doing is wrong. That's it. Clear cut. So, uh, Shaykh Muhammad Malud goes on. This means that your heart is convinced and you have judged him based on your heart's suspicions without proof. That's the key phrase here. Without proof that warrants such an assumption. So that's the important phrase here, without proof. If you have direct eyewitness proof, or you have multiple upright witnesses about that person's actions, it is no longer having a good opinion when you have evidence to the, to the contrary. Right? He says there's nothing wrong with having doubts about someone or having a bad opinion of him if it is based on sound reasoning, sound reasoning, and is not arbitrary. So, basically, what is haram? What is a disease of the heart? Is to entertain suspicions about other people without proof, without clear proof. And this is when they become like fixed ideas in the heart, just like fear of poverty. You know, sometimes you get a passing thought and then it goes away, right? We're not talking about that. We're talking about the fixed idea, the suspicion, the bad suspicion about someone that doesn't have proof. There's no eyewitnesses to uh, corroborate your suspicion. You have no uh, reasonable uh, uh, argument to justify that bad opinion. It's just a bad opinion because what they're doing has a possibility of being good and bad. Or bad, so you go with the bad instead of the good. But when you have a possibility like this, it could be good, it could be bad, you go with the good, unless you have clear evidence to the, to the contrary. right? So it has to be objective. Uh, so again, it, it's not a sin to have bad thoughts about people if it's a passing thought that occurs for just a moment and you push it away as soon as it comes. right? You see that person praying and it occurs to your mind for a split second. Oh, what if they're showing off? That's a passing thought. Don't, don't take ownership with that. Don't take ownership of that. Just let it go. You don't believe it. Keep going. 
that is not what is forbidden here because you're not in control of those passing thoughts that come and go. What you're in control of are the fixed ideas and beliefs that you have in yourself about that person. Uh, likewise, it's not sinful if you have a bad opinion of someone based on objective facts, experience, or the testimony of upright people. Right? So if you have objective facts, you have proof, or you have trustworthy witnesses who witnessed this person doing something, or you have experienced yourself, you know, this person did you dirty or something. In that case, you can have a bad opinion because you have objective reason to have a bad opinion. Now, that doesn't mean you condemn them to hell or that you curse them. No, it just means you're not going to trust them as you would trust someone who doesn't have those behaviors, right? So if you have experience with someone lying, for example, or defrauding or breaking promises or violating trust or attacking people's honors, we have yaqeen about those behaviors that they did. And we have no reason to have husn al-dhan for them except for two things. So even if the person is doing bad things that are clear-cut, objective, even then you can have husn al-dhan, but it's not towards their actions. It's a different kind of husn al-dhan. And that husn al-dhan is for you to have a good opinion of them that inshallah they will make tawbah. I'm not going to trust them with my money. I'm not going to trust them with my private business. I'm not going to take them as a friend because I don't like that behavior. It's objectively bad behavior. However, I have a good opinion of them that inshallah, they're a mu'min, they're, they're a Muslim. Inshallah, Allah will guide them to tawbah at some point in their life. You know, that's a, you're having a good opinion to that extent, right? So that is the husn al-dhan directed towards them in, hope that Allah, in hopes that Allah gives them tawbah. You can also have husn al-dhan by comparing yourself to them and saying to yourself, yes, okay, this person is doing these bad things, but if I was in their position, I would have done worse. That's an important viewpoint. Because if you have that viewpoint, you say to yourself, okay, this person, you know, they're doing this and that. If Allah put me in their shoes, if I lived their life experience, I probably would have done worse. This is helpful because it means you're cautious and you're not going to necessarily get involved with them in business or life, but it's not an attitude you take out of arrogance, feeling that you're better than them. Right? You say to yourself, well, I would have been worse than them if I was in their shoes. At the same time, I'm not going to take them as my friend. I'm not going to trust them with my money and so on. Right? So he concludes this by saying, uh, thus our bad opinion of a corrupt person whose actions indicate his corruption is not prohibited. Right? You're just going with objective facts. So the disease... If we go back to the beginning, the disease is when a per you have a bad opinion about someone who manifests righteous behavior and you have no reason to suspect them of showing off, but you still suspect them of showing off and not being sincere. Or they do something that has the possibility of being interpreted positively or negatively and you interpret it negatively, even though you could interpret it in a positive way. Those are the two areas where it becomes a disease, to harbor that in your heart. Everything else, it's not a disease. It's actually, it's called being intelligent and aware of people's reality, right? All right. Uh, the next one, we're going to, some of these will go a little faster than others. Uh, the next disease. So we covered fear of poverty, uh, having a bad opinion of others. The next one is called ujub, or conceit. And this disease, ujub, is translated as conceit, self-aggrandizement, amazement with oneself, or vanity. Right? 
Now the question here is, what is the difference between ujub and kibr? Uh, this this uh, conceit and arrogance. What's, what's the difference? There isn't uh, a huge difference between them. However, where the difference lies is often in the, you could say, the application or the, the object of it. Because according to Imam al-Ghazali and others, arrogance, kibir, requires two people or more. So you, the person is arrogant, and they are being arrogant towards someone else, right? Whereas ujub can be there, and the person is all by themselves on top of a mountain, isolated from humanity. They can be all by themselves, but they're still amazed with themselves. It's a pride that is directed inward. And it's not a pride that is projected outward in how we treat other people or see ourselves vis-a-vis other people. Does that make sense? So they're, they're almost the same. It's just that you know, if you pair them together, arrogance manifests in how you look down on other people and treat them, feeling that you're better. Whereas ujub is inwardly projected where you're just amazed with yourself. Oh, how awesome am I, right? It doesn't concern other people. Once it concerns other people, that ujub is mixed in with arrogance and you have the two kind of merged together. So a lot of what we say about ujub is said about arrogance, which comes uh, soon. So the conceited person is amazed with themselves. They are impressed about their looks or their talents or their skills, their material possessions. You know, they're really amazed with themselves. How marvelous am I? Wow, I'm a peacock. You know, they're just, they're just amazed with themselves. It's a kind of narcissism, right? Uh, Imam Muhammad Maulud says that ujub, conceit, is the aggrandizing of some blessing while forgetting that it came from Allah. Oof, he's saying that. Really, it's the person taking a blessing from Allah and it's like they ascribe it to themselves. I am so great because I have this and that. You know, it's mine, mine, mine. And because it's mine, I am awesome. And they're forgetting that what they're calling mine, mine, mine is actually his, his, his. Allah gave it to them. Allah facilitated it. Allah gave them their intelligence. Allah gave them their looks. Allah gave them their skills, their education. The means for all of that, which has come into their life, is all from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So these things that they're amazed about, it's okay to be amazed about them, as long as it's not inwardly projected. If you're amazed about it, like, you know, mashaAllah, you know, I have, you know, I'm the, I have the fastest uh, one-mile run in all of Pennsylvania. Look how Allah has blessed me. That's a great blessing from Allah. It's, you know, you, in that case, it's not about uh, narcissism. It's about appreciating the blessing of Allah, right? So, he says it is this aggrandizing of some blessing while forgetting that it came from Allah. That is the key thing. So, this is the person who is exulting in the blessings they have while forgetting the source. If you don't forget the source and you thank the source and you see it all from him, and you're just appreciative of it and happy, okay, that's different. You're not being uh, vain. You're not suffering from ujub necessarily. Now, Imam al-Ghazali, he says that if a person acknowledges Allah's blessings in their life and is happy about them, while also fearful that they could be removed, he's not guilty of ujub. If they have those two things. They appreciate the blessings, they recognize the blessings are from Allah, and they do have that fear and worry that they could be taken away if they don't show proper shukr. If they have those two things combined, they don't have ujub. Because you could be happy with blessings. Allah says to the Prophet, as for the blessings of your Lord, speak about them. Right? But you're speaking about them as what? Mine, mine, mine? Or as? Ni'mati Rabbik, the blessings of your Lord. That's the, the key difference. So, Ujub is the disease of the one who feels secure 
and forgets the source of their blessings. Right? Another form would be in one's intelligence and opinion. It could be anything, really. And you find stories in the Qur'an that demonstrate what happens to a person or people who have this ujb. Right? So, for example, you have in, uh, uh, in Surah Qalam, right? Uh, Allah Ta'ala tells the story of these people, and they're said to be from the Yemen, where, you know, they, they had these large walled orchards, right? And, you know, they would go to these orchards, and they made a plan, you know, they're going to go there, they're going to pluck these fruits, uh, and, you know, we're going to go, and they don't even say, inshallah, and while they're sleeping that night, preparing to go in the morning to pluck the fruits, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent a ta'if, you know, a, like a circling, you could say, it could be an angel, according to one tafsir, uh, or a wind, something circling that destroyed everything, right? And so they woke up in the morning, and they woke up and said to each other, well, let's make sure none of the poor people come in here, you know, you know, and they're exulting, they're proud about all this, and they come inside and they see what happens, right? It's all gone. And then, subhanAllah, you know, one of the people in the group, Right, the people, one of the persons who was uh, not so far gone in their arrogance and ujub, he said, didn't I tell you that you should be glorifying Allah in all of this? And they realized this is the result. This is what happens. Anyhow, there's so many stories. The story of the two men in the garden in Surah Al-Kaf, even clearer story, because he's, you know, he's actually saying these things as opposed to just manifesting them in behavior. So stories in the Quran illustrate what happens when you have ujub. People who have ujub uh, is often a kind of istidraj, where they're being fattened up for the slaughter, so to speak. They receive blessing after blessing, and they become more arrogant, more prideful, more vain, until it becomes their downfall, right? So ujub is definitely a disease in the heart. But if a person acknowledges Allah's blessings and they're fearful of their removal, then inshallah they're free of this disease. Uh, Ibn Simak, Ibn Simak al-Harb, he says, uh, ujub is to be haughty and conceited over people due to your good deeds, holding them in contempt and looking down on those who are less than you in good deeds. So this is ujub as a kind of arrogance. And Ibn Simak al-Harb is telling us, just as you can have ujub with your material possessions and your education and whatever, you can also have ujub with your religiosity, you know, your so-called taqwa and righteous actions. You know, look, I am, I am so pious compared to that person. They look down on them because they're less than pious, right? He says that is to be haughty and conceited over people because of your good deeds. You know, uh, I perform hajj ten times and this person has never gone even once. I am so much better, right? Look at how Allah has favored me over him. That is arrogance. That is, uh, that is ujub. Uh, Imam al-Sha'arani, uh, one who is always... Uh, always want to bring the proverbial sledgehammer to the nafs. He has a way with that. Imam al-Sha'arani says that a person can even be conceited about their lack of conceit. You see the trap there? You go through the checklist and you think, ah, I don't have rojib. Mm, I don't have rojib. I am great. I, don't have, I am not conceited. So they are conceited about their imagined lack of conceitedness. Look at the traps of the nafs and shaitan. He says you could be conceited about your lack of conceit, which he says is worse than ordinary conceit. He says this is like the person who is proud of their humility. I am so humble, in my humble opinion. I am the humblest person in this room, you know. Right? That is pride under the guise of humility. That's worse than ordinary arrogance because... It is arrogance with a quasi-religious veneer over it. You know, ordinary arrogance is bad, but when you take arrogance and give it a religious veneer, it becomes arrogance that is framed as a virtue. So that makes it worse. 
This is what Imam Sha'rani is saying. How do you treat it? Uh, Imam Muhammad Walud says, treat it by realizing that the exalted is the fashioner, al-musawwir and al-mun'im, the bestower of blessings. Realizing that because of your impotence, you can produce neither benefit nor harm. Indeed, vanity originates from one's ignorance of these two matters. It all goes back to Tawheed. What's the source of everything? It's not from us. So how can we take credit for it as if it's ours and become proud over something that is not ours, that has been given to us? That is the basic treatment. Uh, the opposite is to mention the blessings of Allah as Allah's gift and not claiming them as your own due to your own effort. لا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله. Allah honored you to be the the, the madhar or the locus of that good that he has given you, right? Whatever it is. So again, going back to the basics, uh, the treatment for ujub is like the treatment of so many other diseases. It is going back to the basic beliefs and convictions we have as Muslims, not just intellectually, but in the heart, knowing that Allah is the creator and provider of everything, and that no matter what we have, it's all from Allah. وَمَا بِكُمْ مِنْ نِعْمَةٍ فَمِنَ اللَّهِ Whatever blessing you have is from Allah. That's it, right? Whatever talent you have, whatever education, whatever tawfiq, it's all from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, whence the conceit? All right. Now these next couple diseases, because we're wrapping up, these, we're just looking at the poetry. Not too much commentary because they're very basic. The next disease is... Inappropriate anger. Inappropriate anger. Now he says ghadab, but he doesn't mean all forms of anger. He means inappropriate anger. Because anger is a blessing from Allah Ta'ala. It is something he has given us as a part of our nature, uh, is a part of the survival instinct. Al-Quwwat al-Ghadabiyya is a blessing. It is inappropriate anger when it is taken to an excess or applied to someone or something that doesn't deserve that anger. He says, as for the swelling ocean of all these diseases, I mean anger, if you come to its shore, you will see ajaib, you'll see astonishing things. Its waves and everything else about it are overflowing, so say of it what you will without constraint. You know, anger rises, it's, it's like a fire, and it's like an ocean in a way. He says, he just describes it, that's anger. And he says it has two treatments. <laughs> so basically, inappropriate anger is when it goes outside of the bounds of sharia in word or deed. Right? You're not supposed to get rid of all anger. It's supposed to be only for what is halal, what is wajib, uh, what is appropriate. When it goes outside of that in the form of verbal or physical abuse or whatever, it's inappropriate anger. We all know that. It's so basic. How do you treat it? He says it has two treatments. One of them removes it altogether without trace. The other suppresses it should it manifest itself. To be adorned with the ornament of its cure, remember the extensive praise lavished upon forbearance and humility. So, hilm and tawadur. Remember the praise in the Qur'an and the sunnah for these two virtues. It will help you to acquire them, which will remove that inappropriate anger uh, in the sacred law. As well, you know, the, the praise lavished on forbearance and humility in sharia, as well as in the poetry and prose of the hukama, the wise people. Indeed, remember that all of the prophets have been depicted as having both qualities, hilm and tawadur, forbearance and humility. That's what he says. He says, repel anger by perceiving at its onset that there is no one doing anything in reality except the Almighty. Right? Okay, that person cuts you off in traffic and you want to curse them out. You're angry. That is the moment to realize La fa'ila illallah. There's no true doer except Allah Ta'ala. Wallahu khalaqakum wa ma ta'amanun. 
Your actions and that person's actions will cut you off in traffic. You can be angry, but you can't exercise inappropriate anger by lashing out and doing things that are haram. So in that moment, he's saying, remember, who created all this? Imagine the world as if it's just a movie playing out and you're observing. Okay, these are the characters I have to deal with. But everything, there's a director behind all of this. Remember this. Also, he says, treat anger by performing wudu with cold water, not hot water, cold water, keeping silent and lying down if one is sitting. These are all from the hadith because the cool water cools off the person. Keeping silent <laughs> is very important. You know, there's a rule in life. A lot of people only learn until it's too late. And that is, when you're angry, don't say anything. Whatever you want to say when you're angry, say it a week later. Say it two weeks later. Because I guarantee you, you may feel like, I'm going to tell this person off right now because they made me angry right now. But if you wait a few days or a week and then say something, it will be far better than what you said in the moment of anger. You will probably regret what you said. But if you have time to cool, cool off, you'll be more objective. It's very important. Um, one person, uh, one of my old friends, he passed away. He says, uh, when you go for hajj, all those people who annoy you, just write down that moment that they annoyed you. Save it on a piece of paper, keep it with you. And then when you're standing at Arafat, take it out and make dua for them all. You'll find your, you feel, you'll, be, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Yeah. He says, and sitting, if one is standing, it will pass by doing these things and also by seeking refuge in Allah, as was mentioned in the hadith. That's it. We don't really need to go through much detail for that. Um, there's, well, there's two more. Now, boasting and arrogance is grouped together. So it's really one. And then there's uh, ingratitude. We just have these two more. So what is boasting in Arabic? Who knows the word? Bakhr. Uh, iftikhar, right? Now some people have that name, right? You know, my name is Iftikhar. <laughs> so Fakhr is uh, boasting. And arrogance is kibr, kibriya, takabbur. There's different meaning, different shades of meaning. Imam Muhammad Mulud says, boasting is counted among these peculiarities. It is defined as you're praising yourself for your good qualities. Right? That's boasting. So when the Prophet ﷺ says, Adam, I am the, the master of the children of Adam, he says that, and then he says at the end, Wala fakhr. That is no boast. Because he is praising himself for a good quality. But then he ends it by saying, Wala fakhr, and that is no boast. Because Allah commanded him to say that, so we know his maqam. Right? He says, you should deem its tall mountain as insignificant. By which I mean, of course, arrogance. This, this doesn't come out in the English as it does in the Arabic. Because kibir comes from the root of kaf, ba, ra. You know, to big yourself up. You know, you puff yourself out. Right? Kabir. So if you want to get rid of kibir, you have to make yourself small a little bit. He says, deem its tall mountain as insignificant, by which, of course, I mean arrogance. Do this if you desire it to collapse to the ground. How do you treat arrogance? Arrogance can manifest in so many ways. You know, your lineage, your race, your, your country, your, 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 your caste, your job, your possessions, your looks, your whatever. So many ways. Your knowledge, right? He says, how do you treat it? By knowing your Lord and knowing yourself. Knowing Allah and knowing yourself. For whoever knows these two is humbled and feels insignificant. The station of arrogance negates the station of gratitude. Right? So kibir contradicts shukr. Right? We look in the Quran, there's the word kufr. Right? Disbelief or rejection contrasted with shukr. 
Kibir also is contrasted with shukur, gratitude. He says, just as humility by its nature engenders gratitude. So humility brings shukur, just as arrogance brings ingratitude. He says, avoid and beware of humiliation and lowliness. In fact, display pride with the affluent and arrogant one. You know, just as we were talking about husn al-dhan and not getting taken for a ride, and knowing that there is an appropriate suwadhan, there are times when you should have a bad opinion about someone. Likewise, with arrogance and treating arrogance, it doesn't mean you should humiliate yourself and degrade yourself in front of other people. He says, beware of humiliation and lowliness. In fact, display pride with the affluent and arrogant one. And this is from the words of, uh, I believe it was Abdullah bin Mubarak and others from the, the Sadaf. They would say that it is from humility to act proud in front of the rich and haughty. You know, some person who's puffed up with pride, you do not display adab towards them by humbling yourself like, yes sir, yes sir. Well, that's what they want from you. You're actually making it worse for them. You are encouraging their disease by being super humble in front of this haughty, wealthy person. They say that humility is that you behave with dignity in front of those people. Right? You're being dignified. So, izzatun nafs, self-honor and self-dignity is not the same as, as arrogance. Right? And lastly, uh, is ingratitude, which we just touched on, which is, uh, I can't remember how he translates, uh, how the Arabic, kufran and ni'mah, Right, in Adma Shukr, not having gratitude. Among the faults of the soul is obliviousness to blessings. Its root lies in inattentiveness to the statement, Whatever blessings you have, it is from Allah. By simply remembering this and keeping in mind other verses of admonition, such as, he does not change, and if you show gratitude, then this chronic disease can be excised from you. Right? Obliviousness to blessings. What, what is that? You know, it's with a person. Okay, think about this. Uh, if you look at the lifestyle of kings five, six, seven hundred years ago, they didn't have central air conditioning, they didn't have central heating. They, have, they had to have their servants and attendants warm up the water with fire and bring the pot to them to have warm water for a bath. Their bathroom, they didn't have running water all the time. We have more than many of the kings of the past had. Yet we complain. Oh, we got it so bad, right? We don't see the blessings around us because we're so accustomed to them, you know? He says its root is in inattentiveness to the statement of Allah, وَمَا بِكُمْ مِنْ نِعْمَةٍ فَمِنَ اللَّهِ Whatever blessings you have is from Allah, right? By simply remembering this and keeping in mind the other verses, this disease can be removed. What other verses? He, he mentions them in passing. He does not change here. إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يُغَيِّرُ مَا بِقَوْمٍ حَتَّى يُغَيِّرُ مَا بِأَنفُسِهِمْ Indeed, Allah does not change the condition of a people until they change what is in themselves. Meaning, Allah does not change the condition of a people from good to bad until they change what is in themselves by being ungrateful. Right? And also remembering the verse, if you show gratitude, if you show gratitude, I will increase you. So you think about the verses of shukr, the verses that mention the ni'am, the blessings and favors and the fadl of Allah, so many verses, you will take on the, the raiment of the shakir, the grateful person, right? Really, the ulama say that this is the path of shukr. The tariqat al-shukr is a tariqat al-asliyah. You know, it is the original path of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Right? It is not that you live as a pauper. It is that whatever Allah gives you, you have, you have gratitude, he gives you more, you have gratitude, you live a life of shukr. Shukr is the animating aspect of the mu'min's life. 
So if you have that, you won't be oblivious. You won't, you know, you know those people who you could give them a really nice gift and, uh, oh, yeah, thanks. Right? And it could have been a $1,000 watch for all we know. Like, oh, wow, thank you. Then they put it down. You sense it from them that they don't really appreciate it. They don't have this ta'zimul minna. On the other hand, I'm sure you've encountered people, and I'm sure many, most of you are probably like this, alhamdulillah. If someone gives that person even something small, like they show so much gratitude. Thank you so much. Jazakallah khair. Wallah, I really appreciate it. And it's small. They really show gratitude. That shows you they're paying attention. That shows you that they have appreciation for the small blessings and the large blessings. Because what's the difference between the small blessing and the large blessing? When they're all from Allah. If the giver of the small blessing is Allah, and the giver of the large blessing is Allah, and that person was just the vehicle of getting it to you, if you look behind all of this, who's the giver? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, whether it's small or large. So when you see that reality, you have a magnification of the small blessings and of course magnifications of the major blessings too. Right? We note the difference, but to be aware of that, that really gets rid of this ingratitude. Um, and that it just requires paying attention. That's what he says here. Uh, it, the, it, the disease lies in inattentiveness, not paying attention. So the cure is in paying attention and recognizing blessings as being from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's it. Uh, alhamdulillah. Um, now in Matarutu Qulub, in that section of the poem about diseases, I excluded about four or five things simply because we already talked about them. Uh, and they're more external things like uh, cheating or fraud and financial things. Because we talked about that in financial matters, I didn't put it in this module. So we, we covered 90% of the diseases, and we uh, omitted those that we already covered elsewhere. So inshallah, next week we'll cover the, uh, the munjiyat, or the praiseworthy qualities that give us salvation. So if these are the diseases that we root out and remove from the heart, what are the things we got to bring in? That's what we'll talk about next week, insha'Allah. Those that are fard'ayn, obligatory for us to know about, insha'Allah. And after that, we'll introduce what's going to be in module 11, which is, uh, it's like a buffet of issues, of contemporary issues and uh, important issues that are fard'ayn for us. Wallahu wa rasulu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. I don't think there's any time for questions, huh?